I want to introduce you to a woman who's become something of a regular on the drum, the ABC TV program I usually host. She's Nell Frizzell. She's a wonderful woman, an author and a journalist and a great observer of British life. And she's going to talk to us about how delicate it is just at the moment to talk about the late Queen, even in England. Also a history professor from Harvard University who's written what I think is one of the best reflections on the conundrum many are wrestling with tonight across the Commonwealth. How do we reconcile a seemingly benevolent Queen with the often cruel legacy of the British Empire? And Paola Totoro, an Australian journalist who lost her sense of smell and wrote about it. I don't know why I'm laughing. Many people who've had COVID had that happen. It's not very nice. But Paola had her perceptions of scent all muddled up. And later tonight, she'll tell us about her new book, which includes the story of the months in which her dog's poo smelled to her like perfume. Woof. Let's start tonight with the wonderful author and journalist Nell Frizzell. Now, I was first introduced to Nell when she wrote her book, The Panic Years, in which she came up with that name for that certain point in a woman's life where questions of motherhood do create something of a panic. She's more recently written a novel called Square One and the thread that joins it all together is that Nell is an observer of life, British life in particular, and she's with us tonight to share her thoughts on this particular moment in the life of the UK and of the Commonwealth. Nell, hello. Hello, Ellen. That's such a kind introduction. <laughs> Thank you very much. I cannot believe I also... we've turned you into this. We've turned you into this <laughs> British correspondent just because we <laughs> like you. It's absolutely brilliant. I'm delighted. I also lost my sense of smell for a year, just completely by the by. We hadn't planned to talk about this. But let me tell you, I drank some very cheap wine when I had no sense of taste or smell. It was fantastic. I bet the hangover <laughs> was just as bad, even though you couldn't smell it on the way down. Yes, unfortunately, that is true. Yes. <laughs> tell me, where were you when you heard the news of the passing of Her Majesty? I was at home, actually, uh, waiting to collect my son from his first day at school. So that was quite an odd time to be um, to be sort of thinking, oh, I, he is uh, five, so he's just starting school. And he absolutely loves the Roald Dahl story, the BFG, in which I don't know if you won't have read it for a few years, <laughs> I imagine, Ellen, but uh, the, the sort of the children of the world are saved by the Queen. Oh. And so this is the first time where there is a sort of a news story, a topical story that directly relates to something that he can sort of understand or, you know, uh, he can um, recall almost in word for word detail with that book. So I went and picked him up from school and I was saying, you know, darling, you know the Queen? And he said, oh, mum, kings and queens aren't real. They're just like fairies. <laughs> and I said, ah, right, no, that's not true. <laughs> they are real. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry to say that the Queen from the end of the BFG, she's died. And then he, uh, like all curious children, said, and what does that mean? Uh-huh. And it's really interesting, isn't it? I think there's been a lot of discussion at the moment about how we talk to children about death and what they're ready for and how you, know, how you broach it, whether that's a person in the public eye or someone in your private life. And so I had to say, which is what I've said to him all his life, um, it means that her heart stopped beating and she stopped breathing. And then he sort of took that as, um, he just, under, you know, he sort of took that uh, in the way that a five-year-old processes everything you tell them, that, you know, tadpoles turn into frogs and that the <laughs> sea is blue. You know, he just sort of understood that that's what happened. I think for me, it was slightly more complicated yes. because... 
Uh, at some point in my childhood, my grandmother got the same hairdo as the Queen, <laughs> same glasses, same black handbag and same love of uh, very colourful patent uh, court shoes. So I think they had started to form the similar kind of figure in my mind. And so when I found out the Queen had died, my instant thought was, oh, Ma, I suppose my granny's not here to see it. Maybe that's a good thing. But it really reminded me of mm. the feeling I'd had when she died. And I think for a lot of people in the UK of my generation, we are fairly ambivalent, I think it's fair to say, about um, having a monarchy and the costs involved and what that says about inherited wealth and power and exactly as your other contributors saying, the kind of the history of colonialism uh, by the UK. And yet we have this sort of personal sense of um, familiarity with that woman. You know, she was sort of, she either looked like our grandmothers or our grandmothers had had her on a tea towel or she had, you know, given out certificates in your school or, you know, there was some something that reminded you of your childhood. And so, I, yeah, I would say that when I found out, I was, I had that sort of um, sense of it being a historical moment, but I wasn't... Um, sort of I didn't feel personally mm. shocked in the way that I have been um, with the death of either a younger person or someone in sort of more unexpected circumstances. But isn't it interesting that Yasan alighted on the exact question that's occupied um, editorial writers, one of whom's on tonight, <laughs> across the globe, <laughs> what does that mean? I mean, The Atlantic yeah. wrote, after the qu Queen, what is Britain? And I was interested to hear you report that much as in this country, Nell, any kind of uh, questioning about mm. the extent, what that means for Britain, uh, Britain as a middle country, not as a major world power, what that means for the UK is very, is as touchy there as it is here. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting time to have a new prime minister, mm. a new monarch, a parliament that is suspended for, you know, 10 days. And there's a I think talk that the House of Commons isn't going to debate until the 17th of October, which is sort of wild. Um, but we are, I think, unlike the coronation of the Queen, where it felt like a major sort of period of difficulty, economic, social upheaval in the UK has sort of come to an end in 52. Mm. We are now facing something similar, possibly worse, and we're just at the beginning of that process. And I, I, I think it? that's incredibly telling. I mean, the, the, the fact that the House of Commons was debating, I think, the biggest post-war economic um, package, which was mm. into the hundreds of billions uh, equivalent of Australian dollars, because you're looking at a mm -hmm. recession next year and 22% unemployment and shutting the door to everybody from Europe's given you a labour shortage. And I mean, yeah. what's all that combining with the loss of the woman who has, for many Britons, represented constancy and perhaps camouflaged the notion of a Britain in slow decline meant when it's all coincided on the one day. We might uh, try and get uh, Nell back, but I think it is an interesting question to start asking. What, does, what is Britain after the Queen? How do they wrestle with that? and the extent to which it pre presents really a national moment where they have to ask themselves, who are we? Who are we at this particular moment in the UK? At any rate, we might hear a little bit of music and we redial. Oh, you're there now. Sorry. I asked you the world's longest question and then you went. Sorry. Yeah, I am... Um 
what can I say? I, I Blame me. Just as scurrilously close to republicanism and <laughs> I got cut off. <laughs> Somebody's uh, outside with a pair of scissors. Somebody, yeah, there's, there's a man, a beef eater, in fact, is standing outside <laughs> holding a corgi and he just snipped all the power cables to my home. Um, but is the joint no, having what, a nervous I, breakdown is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I think it is interesting to look at, you know, I think there is great, uh, fear and anxiety in the UK. But often what comes out when we are confronted with a period of uncertainty or something that is sort of troubling, a lot of people revert to or regress to a sort of old-fashioned narrative of patriotism, of the UK being great, of being strong, of, you know, that uh, sort of isolationism, um, a, a sort of version of nationalism, that the Queen has been like a huge part of to that narrative. And that's not her doing, you know, that, that I'm sure that's the sort of uncomfortable position to hold for anyone in power. But it's going to be interesting to see how that shifts when we don't have the kind of signifiers of mm. an old-fashioned um, sort of British authority, power, um, status, all that kind of, you know, like even things like being having a stiff upper lip, being stoic, have, being polite, having a certain kind of accent, a certain skin colour, you know, the, the way that we build our homes, all of that stuff was sort of, the Queen was archetypal of a certain type of Englishness and Britishness that I think, I would like to think, is now going to shift a bit with the new monarch because I actually don't think it reflects modern Britain at all. And I think it can be weaponised in a way that, you know, these are the discrimination of people of colour and people who have recently arrived in the country and, pe you know, people, as you were saying, who were coming to this country to wipe the bottoms of our old people and pick our food, which I personally found quite useful. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens now to sort of our version of patriotism. And I would like it to be that we become, you know, a nation who are proud of our immigrant communities and we live within our means, imagine that, and that we have a sort of slightly more liberal attitude towards all sorts of social and economic things. But it might be the case that uh, I'm completely out of kilter <laughs> with the rest of my country. Who knows? D dare you say this to people who you don't know well at this particular moment of time? It's interesting. I'm not on Facebook. I wouldn't be saying it on there. Um, but I think with my neighbours, we have sort of, you can tentatively broach it with people. And um, I wouldn't sort of go in with all the fact, you know, did you know that the monarchy cost the British people £102.4 million last year? That's not going to be my opener, although it's true. Um, but, I, you know, I think you can sort of, um, smell it on someone when they have a sort of questioning uh, mind about these things. And I think it's not it's not a generational thing. There are young people mm. who, who are extremely pro the royal family. A lot of people really love Prince Charles's children. They might not like... I think he is only got 42% popularity, according to a new YouGov uh, survey from 2022, um, way behind that of Prince William and most of all, Princess Catherine Middler. I don't even know what her official title is, but I, I sort of have joked for years that when I was growing up, I absolutely thought that the royal family would sort of, you know, come to a quiet close when the Queen died. And mm. then... 
Prince William took the extremely clever strategic step of marrying a thin woman with fantastic hair. And that has absolutely <laughs> revolutionised the way people even my age feel about the royal family. They love, they love the kind of gossip they love seeing inside their houses, oh. talking about what they're wearing, all that kind of thing. But, so but, I think, but Nell, at the same time, it seems from the reaction that Charles didn't do himself any favours on the weekend when he picked up the pen to sign the documents oh. and waved away the staff. And somebody had a close-up of his face and he was sort of baring his teeth at the footman yeah, to grimacing. tell him to get, get rid of this you know, ink pot before yeah. I spill it all over these official documents. <laughs> well, it is, yeah. I mean, I don't know how often you come across sort of um, members of the British upper classes, but there are moments like that when you think, oh, wow, you, like this, just the sort of texture of your life is so different to mine. There's a famous story about um, an aristocrat coming down, holding his toothbrush, saying uh, after he'd sort of... Um, left the UK for the first time saying this isn't foaming what's wrong it's not foaming and every day of his life someone had put toothpaste on his uh, on his toothbrush and he didn't understand that it didn't just self foam and I remember there being a um auction uh at Christie's of some you know these are people who are like 15 times removed from the queen and one of the pieces on sale was a tiny hacksaw made of gold studded with diamonds specifically to be used to cut up your lemons when you're having a gin and tonic and you think like okay so those people can they be held to account for the privilege in which they live or do we have to see that as something that they can't control probably prince charles has had people moving pens and mouse mats and drinks his entire life but it's still quite undignified to shoo someone away with your teeth bared (laughs) No, we we are out of time. So tell me very quickly, what will you drink when you're watching the royal funeral? What's the appropriate tipple? Ah, well, I do have an answer for this. After um, Prince Albert died, Queen Victoria outlawed the drinking of champagne in public because it was seen as too celebratory. So the wily drinkers of the UK started to just pour a bit of Guinness in the top of their champagne to turn it black. And that was known as a black velvet. So... I think there'll be, I'm telling all the people I know who work in pubs that that is a suitable um, post-funeral tipple, should they want. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds disgusting, but it'll get you where you need to go. (laughs) Nell, it's been wonderful to bring you to a wider audience. Thank Thank you you so much. Thank you for giving of your time. It's great. Thank you very much, Helen. Have a great day, evening. That's it. Nell Frizzell, uh, the author of The Panic Years and a new novel called Square One on her observations of British life. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.